This is Top Landing Gear. Hello and welcome to the first of our two-stage full-flaps interviews with the legendary Martin Withers. Martin will be known to everyone and anyone who's heard of the Avro Vulcan, not least because he flew XM607 on the type's most historic mission, the Black Buck Raids during the Falklands conflict in 1982. To listen to Martin, you'd think it was just another day at the office, but of course Black Buck was an undertaking on a scale that defied belief. At around 4,000 miles, the Black Buck raids became the longest bombing runs in history, requiring a total of 15 Victor tankers and 17 separate in-flight refuelings to ensure just a single Vulcan reached its target and got home again. To say it was a nail-biting mission with more than its fair share of heart-stopping moments would be an understatement. But as you'll hear, Martin is as understated as they come. But make no mistake, this is an epic aviation tale told by the man who flew it, Flight Lieutenant Martin Withers. Well, we're absolutely delighted now to be joined by Martin Withers, DFC, who, of course, flew Vulcan XM607 on the historic Black Buck 1 raid and Black Buck 7, actually, on the airfield at Port Stanley in the Falklands in 1982 Martin, I know you're in huge demand as this is the 40th anniversary year of the Falklands, but thank you so much uh, for joining us on Top Landing Gear. First question I'd just like to ask you is what your thoughts were when you first got wind of the operation that the Vulcan might be used in anger? Well, quite simply, I didn't take it seriously at all. <laughs> um, it, I find it quite strange, this, because everything I'm saying now is in the book, I think, but... Uh, <laughs> But, no, I, I just didn't take it seriously um, because I was my crew. They selected the three crews uh, to train up and to do air to air refueling. And when I was told that my crew was on standby to come back and do this air to air refueling to get involved uh, down south, I, I thought. But we were going to learn to do air to air refueling. I thought, oh, great sport, you know. And I even I was wasn't living down at Waddington. I was living up here. And I went and came home for the, for the weekend and was telling people down the pub uh, all about the, uh, the fact that I was going to do air-to-air refueling. So we're going to bomb the arses. <laughs> probably giving away top-secret information. <laughs> because I really genuinely didn't think it was uh, going to happen. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the, the news was that the, 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 the RAF was was getting Vulcans ready to go. There was no actual really secret to that. It was mm. just supposedly to intimidate the the Argentinians. But um, no, I didn't take it seriously, and it was all seemed a bit of fun. And the first trip, certainly, doing the air-to-air refueling was a real good laugh. Because, <laughs> uh, I, had, I was with the um, Dick Russell, who is a very special man to me now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he, uh, he, he, he just came over with... 
took him in the simulator to show him where the switches were and then threw him in the right-hand seat and then off, off we went to jo- join up with a tanker. And he sort of showed, gave me the rough idea of what to do, but he didn't manage to get in in, the, in about three or four prods. <laughs> so used to having the, the visible, well, you can see the in the Victor, of course, the, the probe is visible in right up above your head mm-hmm. and you just drive in just sort of looking up slightly. Yeah. Whereas on the Vulcan, the probe is in the nose. And as you're going, it's like parking in a parking space. You know, you, <laughs> you sort of see it coming and then after a bit, you see whether you actually line up or lining up an aircraft typically when you try yeah. to get on the spot when you're coming in and you have to do the last bit absolutely straight and spot <laughs> where the bit is. But anyway, um, but that, that was all good fun. And I I was lucky enough to get in first go, but only because I was watching where he was going wrong. Huh. And it didn't, didn't after that ever get in first go. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just going back slightly, Martin, for him to jump in a, in a Vulcan after being on Victor's for however long he'd been on Victor's, Oh yeah, how different is it on a Vulcan to to to, to fly from the round seat of a Vulcan to a Victor? Is it, is it completely different or is it very similar? Well, I think he he found it actually very pleasant. You know that it, it's so manoeuvrable Vulcan by comparison with that. Uh, yeah, uh, and the the Vulcan, well, it handles like a I won't say a fast jet, but it mm-hmm. it if I flew jet jet Provost for ages and mm-hmm. the sort of Rate of roll and, and so for a Vulcan is very similar to something like a Jet Provost. Yeah, in other words, is quite quick. Whereas a Victor mm-hmm. is it's not quite as bad. It's more like a seven oh seven here. <laughs> sort of, um, and so and the engine response is really good and uh, it, it's a joy to fly. Um, yeah. And he found that, but the only hard bit was that you can't actually see how, whether you're going in, mm-hmm. and you have to use reference points under the Victor, which are all painted in. Yeah, and they're quite visible. So you just had to. It's like joining up in formation. You sort of uh, have a point to aim at and the, the other, and then you know you're in the right position in a in a formation. Um, and it did work doing it that way. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was good. But then very quickly we we were told that the Vulcan was the plan was for the Vulcan to be used um, to go and put a bomb on the on the runway at Stanley. Yeah. And then once you did the sums and reasoned that it's, it was 4,000 miles each way, <laughs> um, uh, but we'd sort of thought, well, how can we do this? And so we, but the air to air refueling seemed to be coming on quite well, um, quite enjoyed it, but they didn't train up the co-pilots. There wasn't time to train up the co-pilot, uh, but it was, I was starting to get quite cocky sometimes, sort of joining <laughs> up in the turn. And, uh, <laughs> quite, I still enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah. But um the the biggest problem was that the, the Vulcan had just one role. It was low-level nuclear strike. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the, my crew, were quite an inexperienced back end. The navigators, um, they'd never seen or or dealt with conventional bombs. Mm-hmm. Never launched twenty-one thousand bombs. Found yeah. one. Sorry, twenty-one bombs. Yeah. Um, and uh, so. And then the navigation was wasn't designed at all for long no. distance flying. Um, we would relied heavily in sort of going over Russia by using a, a, a radar yep. to uh, to pick up to reset the old fashioned almost clockwork um, uh, position device. Yep. There's nothing uh, electronic about it at all. <laughs> um, 
and then but they would sync on track and then he would see how far away he was from a particular reference point on the chart that he could work out would be a good return on radar and and fix the the nav plotters um, chart you know so they knew where we were going but once you get over the sea of course there's nothing to to tell you and typically we would use um, a sextant and, and that was it. Our long-range navigation relied on using a sextant. Amazing, isn't it? Which is 1982, uh, even, even uh, in 1982. When, when, you, when yeah. you're refueling an aircraft, <laughs> uh, you don't get very good readouts off a sextant. So, uh, <laughs> we didn't know how it was going to happen. Um, and then the other thing was we, we were able to defend ourselves uh, quite reasonably easily from the Russian radars and everything yeah. because we knew all their frequencies. And our jammers, we had very powerful jammers. One reason we use a huge um, amount of electricity. Um, we have these powerful jammers in the back tuned to the different SAM radars and so on. So we genuinely thought that we could get in uh, low level, um, find our way using radar get to a target in USSR. The original plan for the V-Force was high-level bombing, kids. Initially it was, yeah. Initially, and then then old powers got shot down. Yeah. And that was what changed it to low-level, was it? That's right. We then went exclusively low-level. At the the reason the Vulcan ended up as the the only one um, that remained as a bomber, low-level, was because at the... The, the, build, the building, the strength of the aircraft was up. The, 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 they discovered the Valiant. As soon as they looked at the Valiant, they scrapped a lot of them. So they were all <laughs> cracked and, and everything. They weren't fit to fly at all. Yeah. And the Victors, they knew, had a very limited life. They, they, you know, so uh, as it, flying low level, but a long life um, at high level. So it, that's why the Vulcan was the only one that remained as a bomber. So, so, Ma- so, Martin, at this at this stage, after with with the Vo- the Vulcan coming to the end of its life and its its role um, as a, a nuclear bomber, obviously having been uh, um, taken on by the Royal Navy, the yeah. last thing you thought you were going to be doing, as you alluded to, was training to refuel with an aircraft that hadn't been refueled in midair for twenty odd years, <laughs> let alone fly. Uh, uh, a bombing mission to the South Atlantic. So it must have been a huge turnaround, even just psychologically, for you, to, as you were thinking you were going to be winding down, to okay. suddenly you wound up. And <laughs> that must have been four or six weeks of the most intensive training you'd ever done, I should oh, think, wasn't it? Oh, it was. I, I haven't got the record in front of me, but we were flying every day um, and wherever possible, doing, going up and actually doing some air-to-air refueling, and then we would be doing uh, bombing, so live bombing somewhere. Uh, to start with, we thought we were going in at low level. Mm-hmm. So this was, and we were even flying at night, low level, uh, over the Hebrides and things, over the little islands, um, trying to use um, the, it, you know, the, what do you call it, the infrared, no, the... Uh, Night vision goggles. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, and we tried that, and that was almost lethal. Because <laughs> everything's green, yeah. and you're flying along. And uh, we were surprised we didn't lose somebody there, but it, was, it would have ended up totally pointless. We'd have had to run in um, with the co-pilot using the goggles to sort of tell which, which way to go, and then the other guy, because you can't see the, the instruments with the goggles on. 
know, you get the whole thing is not designed. Yeah. We also felt that if you had to bang out, ours weren't properly attached and they'd probably smash your face yeah. in and, and so on. So it wasn't, they were a no-goer. But fairly short, we weren't doing, we thought it was going to be a one-way ticket, really, because if we had to go in at low level, it, it not only was it quite pointless because the navigators didn't have the means to actually see the target yeah. until the last minute well that's all right if you're on gps and yeah. and all the rest of it you can actually <laughs> find it and you know it was turning up any second and there it is and you press the button we would have had a hell of a job to even find the the airfield mm-hmm. um then to add we needed time for the radar the, the bomb aimer uh, to actually get a good you know work out get a good fix to put his hairs over yeah. um uh, and uh, and then that we were so vulnerable in size and so on. I mean, you look at air shows, people, no problem at all, taking lovely photographs. And stuff. <laughs> Tracking it quite nicely. <laughs> and we had particularly the Ehrlichan guns, you know, yeah. 35 millimeter shells firing at you, uh, more than certainly more than one a second. I think they had four barrels and firing at you. Yeah. And they're really like guarded, aren't they? So, but I mean, it was so typical that um, we were told, don't worry, you'll be going in above 8,000 feet because that's the um, limit of the, sorry, the accurate range of these Hurlican guns. But the bullets don't just stop, do they? (laughs) Afterwards. um, So we knew that we were still incredibly vulnerable going in and going in low level just wouldn't have worked. And, And if you drop a bomb, it has to be, at low level, say 300 feet, you'd have to be up at 300 feet for it to even arm. Yeah. It's a standard little, um, way it arms is once it starts going, it's a little, just a little sort of windmill yeah. that has to go for so many seconds before it, uh, the, the bomb is actually armed. And uh, so we, anyway, you'd have to uh, have to be at 300 feet for it to arm at all. And at 300 feet, you're very exposed to to everything. I had a plan in my mind that I'd worked out the terrain that I was just going to come in at 400 and odd knots and <laughs> take the thing around and uh, just keep it level really at night, knowing that the hills were just maybe a few feet underneath us. So, um, luckily, that didn't have to happen. <laughs> but I did actually test it up at uh, over Lucas one one night. We we're fully laden. Um, we've got 21 bombs on board. We've got, we just filled up the, to full. And I went over Lucas um, and flying at the, the limiting speed was 315 knots, I seem to remember. That was because it was only tested up to that speed. So it didn't. Um, and then I, and you weren't allowed to use more than 15 degrees of bank, but I tried it with about 60 degrees of bank <laughs> at that speed. But we were over Lucas in case it broke up and we had to turn <laughs> out. You know. but, but, yeah, but I mean, this is the way we were thinking. But then, then I learned that, um, in fact, we wouldn't like, change their mind. We weren't going in at low level. Quite a late stage, mm-hmm. only, only giving us a chance to about do two or three trips, um, doing a pull-up attack. And even things like it was very difficult to, for the navigator radar to realise um, how to keep tracking while we pulled up into mm. a steep climb and leveled off and everything. And until we got to sort of a level platform, he couldn't start really aiming again and that sort of thing. So uh, 
But even then, but that was so much different because even though we were only going up to 8,000 feet, in the end we went to 10,000 feet because it felt a bit more comfortable. But mm-hmm. uh, that's another story. <laughs> um, but, um, the, uh, we felt just so much, well, so much better than being at low level. And we did have some jammers, a Westinghouse jamming pod fitted, which enabled us to have that defence mechanism. Uh, and as for the air-to-air refuelling, um, what eased things enormously was that the poor air-to-air refuelling instructor from Marham, the Victors, uh, each one who trained up an individual crew, the three crews, I say, Dick Russell, who as a as uh, I'm hoping to see. On the 1st of May this year, it will be his 90th birthday. Oh, gosh. Wow. The day we actually flew down to Ascension, it was his 50th birthday. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I read that. Um, yeah. I think that's that's in the book as well. Yeah. Did, um, did you know, Martin, early on that your target was going to be Stanley Airport, or were you unsure of what your target was going to be? No, no, fairly early it was, because I thought we were going to be attacking Argentina, you yeah. know, when we first started off. Nobody told us anything. And then when we were told it was the the airfield, the runway, quite quickly. I, but still only about two weeks or less than two weeks before we we actually launched. It, we did know that it was going to be that sort of a pull-up on the runway. And then a high-level attack. And then uh, as soon as we could then get the, get the hell out of there. And high, in fact, we were planned to go out at low level um, in case there was anything that could shoot us down after the attack. Yeah. But... Um, that's, I say we ended up with shorter fuel, so that we didn't do that. The reason we had took the air-to-air refueling instructors with us was that we ca- they calculated what the biggest risk was failure was just that the the tankers mm-hmm. were renowned for for something going wrong and for the whole thing to work with. Well, they took off with eleven, one went wrong before the first exchange of fuel, but they had ten aircraft. Um, the chances of, the, of it working for everyone all the way down just to get us there, uh, it was a pretty close run thing anyway, but yeah. uh, uh, was, I say, they thought the biggest risk to failure. But then the, the second one, people were saying, well, it was only the, the captains who were qualified in air traffic fueling. The co-pilots didn't do anything, you know, mm. um, and it just wasn't time to train them. But... Uh, the, the captain would need some some sort of assistance, and the simplest way was just to make these poor guys mm. come with us. So there he was on his fiftieth birthday, <laughs> uh, never been to war before, and when he did go to war for the first time, he was sitting so sort of um, down the back in a dark hole, not knowing what's going on. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't wouldn't like to even flown down the back. <laughs> Yeah, the company, the company, the, the aircraft. slide out underneath the, the thing, and if you see films of it, um, the when you're coming out, you, you actually sort of fly just underneath the the body of the aircraft. You don't fall out like a paratrooper. Mm. You know, you come sliding down the slide. Yeah. Just, and if the, the wheels were down, you'd go right into them. But mm. that uh, that's a different thing. Mm. So, Martin, when you were on Ascension, then you, I think, did you take Dick off for a, for a sort of birthday drinks at was it two boats and i think probably ended up slightly the worse for wear when you were going on ops the very next day well we were only the reserve crew (laughs) (laughs) never gonna get used are you yeah well that's a point we haven't made that yet have we 
Yeah. It's just that um, I was thinking of Dick and we wanted to give him a good send-off. Uh, and secondly, I, I do like beer. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like one of my biggest worries would there wouldn't be any beer on Ascension Island, you see. <laughs> so I, I'd actually I'd got a home homebrew kit, you know, with a nice big bucket. And I'd put a bottle of whiskey and uh, a whole chunk of beers uh, so we, to take with us. But that was for on the way home. You know. <laughs> but uh, and the the bucket was because I I didn't realise they did actually give us little porter loose oh, in the back there. But that was but in the end I forgot about it and it was left in the up at two boats in the resident where we were living. Yeah, um, but yeah, I say lots and lots of stories. Yeah. So yeah. so six oh seven, which ended up being your aircraft. Uh, yeah. As you say, you were going to be the reserve crew supporting John Reeve, who was in 598. But I think, was it while you were on Ascension, which was only a very short time, and you were there for, what, 24 hours before you flew out? I think uh, you were yeah, then yeah. given... We flew in, I can't remember what time. We, we landed in daylight, anyway, um, on the 29th, mm. that's right. Um, had time just to uh, settle in, find where we were sleeping, uh, um, and uh, then went out for something to eat and a, and a beer. Uh, or, or 10, yeah. It wasn't until the following morning that we were actually told that it actually was on, you know. Yeah. On the way out there, we still hadn't definitely decided. They were still trying to negotiate a peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was the following morning of the yeah. uh, 29th, no, 30th, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh. When we were told, the first thing we were told was that it was on for the night. So yeah. I just went back to bed again and tried to get as much sleep as possible. So. And when were you told about the refuelling plan? Was that while you were at Wide Awake on Ascension? Because you were sitting next to Dick, the refuelling expert at the time, weren't you, when you were told this incredibly complex fuelling plan? Well, well, you've seen it, haven't you? You know what yeah. it looks like. Yeah. Uh, I, show, uh, I remember being shown it when I was going through officer training at Cranwell. That right, what, yeah. In the, the Defence Studies lecture, they put up, you think, you think air power's easy? This is the refuelling plan to get one Vulcan to um, <laughs> uh, to, to the Falklands in 1982. And I remember just looking at it and going, how can it even work that out? I, I still, I've seen it many times. I still can't understand. No. <laughs> I, do, I don't. I just don't understand. I didn't, didn't, I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't know what to be ready for. We were going in for a briefing room, which was full of all the Victor crews, and, you know, the 10, 11 Victor crews, plus a Nimrod crew, plus the, the general planning staff, and just standing up at the back of this big tent. And the first thing that uh, happened was the squadron leader who was briefing uh, put this whole thing up, and he said, there's the refueling plan, gentlemen, any questions? <laughs> Nobody asked the question. No. <laughs> but I just turned to Dick and, and said, do you understand that? You know, and he said, uh, yes. He now told me he lied, but he, uh, yes. he said yes. So that meant I could just, I didn't have to worry about it. But uh, even so, we had no uh, sort of real vision of what it was going to be like no. and how you actually identified the other aircraft and, yeah. and so on. So... Uh, and that was to, to come, you know, a couple of hours later. Uh, we were given other information on sort of a, this places to escape to. You had to bang out over the island. And we were actually given a gun and some bullets. But we decided that we weren't going to take those. Oh. It was too much clutter. 
Mm. Right. I don't think anybody <laughs> wanted to. I don't, I don't know. Well, we haven't got pockets even for it. They just needed <laughs> fun and, and sort of. But so we didn't. We elected not to take guns. You know, um, probably because we. Well, I was done a little bit of pistol shooting, but uh, I wouldn't uh, feel I was qualified really. We always reckon that it was it was better to throw the Browning nine millimeter at an enemy rather than try and shoot him with the accuracy that we <laughs> we generally got with them. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, it's um, and then we just the crew our aircraft was all sort of prepped. It had already been checked over, and the bombs were all in the bomb bay with graffiti written on them. Yeah. Uh, and we but we went out. The biggest memory there, because it was really high temperature, it's about 30 degrees, uh, even close on getting towards midnight. And uh, we were dressed for survival in the South Atlantic. So I had normal sort of socks and, and then uh, long johns and then a flying suit and then a bunny suit and then <laughs> a immersion suit, you know. So, you know, immersion suits and yeah. sort of up to your neck and yeah. everything. And so we were absolutely sweating like pigs when we uh, got into the aircraft. Uh, and it took, oh, quite a while before we managed to cool down again. Uh, but then everything was done in radio silence. The yeah. victors started up one after the other. Um, they were all carefully lined up so they knew the order. We were sitting at different angles. We saw them all going out. We had to follow them behind. And then the engines would spool up and then off they'd go. And then we'd just set the clock and we went one minute after. We were number 13, Taylor and Charlie. Wow. Uh, but um, what the victors then did, which was changed after this, it was the only time they did it, is they got airborne and then set up a... Um, a racetrack um, pattern. So the first ones went out and then the second ones went slightly shorter and then the next lot. So they ended up all coming over the top together mm. and like, like the hundred or thousand bomber range. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah. um, and, and then we just were supposed to tag on at the back end. Um, but we, I was totally lost because we didn't even see them going. We didn't hear them. They were a bit higher than us. Um, and somehow we had to join up with this this thing. Uh, at this stage, were you still in reserve, or had you had you moved up into? Oh, the... I was still in reserve. You're still in reserve. We were all set to go. Well, um, no, I'm sorry. What I'm talking about was afterwards, actually, because it was only took a few minutes before uh, John Reed got to about ten thousand feet, and that's when the uh, warning came on. You know, lack of pressure. Yeah. And uh, they tried around, tried to fix it for a bit, and then they told. Everybody I bet they did. tried bloody hard. They did. They tried. <laughs> it was a, a rubber seal on the window, wasn't it? They tried stuffing sandwich wrappers in it and everything to well, to try I mean, and. I'm keep pretty it tight. sure that what, what happened was it was so hot that we, it's a tiny little DV window. It's only about that big, you know, um, which was just opened and it was on a slide. You could just pull it back and take the whole glass out and then slide it back in. And uh, there was just a, a solid rubber seal. Nothing no air pressure in it or anything yeah. and on occasions it could be a bit tricky to get it back and you had to sort of calmly take it out and put it back in yeah. um but i think what what happened was in the sort of hurry to do this he just used sort of uh, brute force and ignorance to sort of get it shut 
and it must have trapped or something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so they couldn't, you can't take it out again once you're airborne, unfortunately. Um, so uh, that was it. That was the end of what it. A, what a thought. And, and Martin, you, you'd actually, you were, your nose was put slightly out of joint earlier. I'm not sure if that's the right expression because your bone dome wasn't working, was it? Oh, yeah, that really was annoying. I mean, at all times, why it wouldn't work? Um, uh, because I say I like having the bone dome. It's actually nice to sleep in. Let's <laughs> 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 get on the head on the bone dome. Yeah. Uh, but, but it wasn't time for any sleep on the way down. But um, no, I think of all things, you know, when you need a bone dome, and uh, I <laughs> so you wore a cloth cap instead. Yeah, just, just that's the original thing that the V fours had. They had this little cloth cap, mm. and then there's the the bone dome. I mean, the name for the, what the bone dome they're talking about literally was just a like a the earliest of motorcycle helmets, <laughs> uh, which had just just a thing and underneath, you know. But um, and that was the era. Yeah, Martin, can you um, can you remember your uh, reaction or? your feelings at the point at which you thought, but for a window seal, I'm now going to have to fly this mission? Or did you? were you so zoned in? Because I presume at this point you must have thought, I'm going to be having a beer again in half an hour. <laughs> and all of a sudden that's been taken away from you. Did you just switch very quickly because you're a professional and that's what you do? Or was there a moment when you went, oh, for Christ's sake, we're going to have to do this? Well, I, I, I don't exactly remember how I felt it is 40 years ago yeah, but, of course uh, I, I don't I did there was no sort of raised heart rate or anything like that I don't think it was it was oh right okay <laughs> um um but I did we didn't know the the cause for yeah. for why he turned around so yeah when uh, he found that out afterwards but uh no I, I don't think any of us we it's still you're still quite remote from it at that stage but um and in fact, what I found very memorable about the whole trip was when we were finally launched on our own, mm. or however many seven hours later, to actually go in and do the attack. It was almost as though we'd been um, just just a normal sort of flight, <laughs> uh, with in difficult circumstances, with pressure on to get the air-to-air fueling done. Um, and uh, things like that. It was only then when it, mm. it came to, to me that, you know, now we've, we've got to go in and actually do the work and put ourselves in danger. But for the rear crew, they, they really had nothing to do down the back. Mm. They were just reading books and, and <laughs> things like this because no, they weren't doing anything. I mean, the, the AEO was looking at his dials and and uh, the radar was turned off, the uh, inertial nav systems which we had fitted from the VC-10, but we only got two. So when the two disagreed, we, they just had an, an airliner will normally have three. Yeah. You know? uh, so you can see which one is reading yeah. Yeah. differently than the others. Um, but, um, but Martin, during no, I, that long I, that long passage, you were following the, the victors, which were doing this incredible aerial ballet of refueling each other so that it would leave one to do the long slot and refuel you for the last time just before the Falklands. You you had a fantastic view of that, didn't you? The 
we knew we were sort of almost surrounded by tankers, um, but all we were interested in was following the one or two that we we joined. Mm. Uh, start with. Um, we we only found them by luck. I think that's all in the book again. <laughs> 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 we couldn't see what to join. In fact, we're trying to join on a star, on a, a planet, yeah. light ahead, and was homing up to that. <laughs> <laughs> and and then um, we decided that we'd fire a flare to, oh, no, sorry, we asked them to fire a flare to let us know where they were. And we were looking ahead, didn't see anything, and uh, then asked them to fire another one. And the AEO had a periscope, which looks above, and it's just purely to check the top and bottom of the of the aircraft to see if anything's jammed under the aircraft or anything when we're flying along. But it was useful in this. And he said, oh, they're behind us. So uh, wow. we, we just had to slow down and uh, let them overtake us and then join up behind. And uh, this was all in the first... I don't know, 10 minutes or something. You know, I'm so glad you said that because it's my job on this podcast to ask the really stupid questions. <laughs> and I thought that it was too stupid to ask the question, how did you find the victors? <laughs> <laughs> and now it was the perfectly right question to ask. Yeah. Well, Right. <laughs> yeah. My my son was very excited when I said, well, I explained the operation and he couldn't believe that we were talking to you. And... Uh, he actually asked quite a good question, which I thought isn't that stupid. But he said, were you scared? And I was wondering whether you were scared. like Because obviously I, I read somewhere or I listened to you, you thought that you would do your whole REF career without, you know. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. When this suddenly happened, were you, were you nervous or scared when you were doing the training or when you suddenly found out that you were the lead aircraft or did it happen when you were going in for the attack or were you just... No, too no, busy. The, the worst, the worst time was when I thought we were going in at low level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I lost half a stone in Worry. a few days. You know, um, I don't remember being losing much sleep. But then yeah, I'm good at sleeping. But yeah. but I mean, for example, one the, the um, navigator plotter, uh, Gordon Graham. I mean, he put on. <laughs> <laughs> In 12 days, you know, was, uh, we were very stressed by it, yeah. but I don't want to really scared. Yeah. But, uh, depending on how you define scared. Mm. Uh, and certainly when we let down to do the attack, um, it was, I say, it was sort of scary moments to suddenly realize, oh, here we go, you know, I've now been pushed in to uh, jump off a diving board or something. Mm. Um, the, uh, um, but, but actually, final, the final run-in, um, one very good thing that, that I'd done is a passive warning receiver, which tells you when a radar is yeah. seeing you. If, I mean, you'll have heard them, but um, yeah. if, if it's, you're looking at a rotating yeah. radar, then it just goes beep, beep. As it beats every time it actually scans past you, it shows on the recorder. If somebody's locked onto you, it's a solid missile mm. or anything. It's just beep. It's one of the angriest noises you can ever hear in, a, in an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but when we did actually do the, on the run-in to do for the bombing, which um, we did get locked on by mm. the radar. This I can't remember what it's called now. Um, 
radar for these Ehrlichum guns. Mm. Fortunately, we had the Westinghouse pod on, and that did the job to decoy it. Um, and so it, it, if they were firing, we, we never heard anything about it. I don't think they just got a fire if it saw something. But um, but um, poor, particularly Dick Russell, <laughs> he, so I keep going on about him because I'm so, <laughs> so sorry for him. Down the back, he was plugged into the AEO's um, headset, mm-hmm. and, and or not his headset so much, but he was he was his box. His box. Yeah. And uh, so uh, he had, part of his job was to listen for it. So of course he was listening out everything with the volume turned up, and then poor old Dick. Uh, it's because we flew over our fleet and they everybody locked on to us. <laughs> this is the Royal Navy. Yeah. This is the Royal Navy. <laughs> nobody told us where the fleet was because I'd say it was supposedly need to know information. And had, and the, had the back. fleet been warned that you were going to fly overhead? Well, did, we were flown very close to it. Did, did yeah, they know the, you were coming? Did the they fleet, knew we were coming. They did. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. But... Um, when you first hear these lock-ons mm. and you've been wow. told where the Navy is, yeah. then it's yeah. uh, really scary. That is scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But then as I went into for the bombing, um, I was getting ready for, for uh, prepared to see something coming up at us and everything. And this is where I'd lost my bone dome. I hadn't got my slope yet. So I had to put the sun visors down in case I was dazzled by this flash of... Yeah. I'd only watched World War II movies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that because at the time, it was the longest period of peace time yeah. in for centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, the nuclear deterrent was really working. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, it was, and that seemed to do what was necessary. Mm. And so we had a peace and we didn't have these all these other things you know have gone on in our lifetime most people joining and leaving the RAF didn't see any conflict at all and anybody had any medals no at all if you go down to Odium or somewhere like that where they the guys they've got so many um DFCs and bar and uh, and all the rest of it yeah vice marshal uh, the, other, the other week, and he got so many things. They're not like American ones. These, yeah. these are ones for, for real stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a friend of mine, Phil Robinson, I think, who's I think he's just got his air rank, he's probably the air commodore, and he was he's just been on the Chinook throughout the entire the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan. I think he has yeah. about two rows of real yeah. medals, yeah. and they're all AFCs, DFCs, really? bars, everything. Martin, before we go into depth on, on the bombing run, just moving back a step, the the one thing that went majorly askew was the fuel flow rates, which had been miscalculated. So everyone was having to fly further than they really had the fuel for. And then the final refueling of the two Victor tankers went wrong. One guy lost his probe, and so they had to swap the fuel around. So Bob Tuxford then ended up doing the long slot and and, and gave you your last fueling. You didn't realise that he was running incredibly low on fuel and had to turn away and left you very light on fuel yourself if you were going to make it back to the rendezvous point off Rio, having yeah. dropped your bombs. 
What can you just tell us what the sense was, what your feeling was, and I'd love to know how you, how you and Bob made amends at the end of it all. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you see, for us, it, the we didn't measure how much fuel we needed when we came into the, each refueling bracket. What we knew was that at the end of the bracket, you understand the word the bra- the bracket. Yeah, it's an area where you you uh, refuel within that uh, area. Once you got the end of the bracket, that meant that um, the the tanker had to go back because it was worked out that was his maximum range. Yeah. Um, but for, for the Vulcan, they always filled you to full. And, and we, and, but very often we would actually go in, they, we had oh, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, the light would, light would come on, um, enabling us to go just so you're free to join, you know, to take fuel. Um, and if we actually got in straight away, we'd be starting to take fuel and then we stayed hooked up right to the very end of the bracket so we could be actually uh, hooked on and taking fuel um, right up to the, to the to the end so you effectively been well filled up twice mm-hmm. by from the tanker um, because we want had to be full at that point and then these these tankers were then going back home and then so only after they'd given us the fuel would they take a reading of their fuel um, as against the plan. Um, with, when, with Bob's uh, situation, uh, the weather was awful. Mm. Then. And this picture behind me is sort of supposed to show that. I don't know how well you can see it. Yeah, yeah it's the electrical it's, storm, it's, isn't it? It's, uh, it shows all the lightning and everything. That yeah. it, it wasn't quite like that, otherwise you wouldn't be able to see the aeroplane. But it, <laughs> it, was, it was really rough. And... Uh, in fact, we, but, um, as we got close, we would just sort of stay well clear of it and we could see it, sort of guys working hard to go. We saw them going back and forth and, and so on. Um, and uh, uh, we, But we didn't actually, or I didn't see that they'd actually changed places. But, of course, when they, because they did change places, then... They'd probably gone further south than than was planned by the time they'd changed and and Bob had taken as much fuel as he could. But that would have meant also that the um, Biggles (laughs) airplane... Steve Biggles, yeah. Yeah. uh, He he needed, he absolutely had to have enough fuel to guarantee him getting back because now he hadn't got a probe. So... Mm. No good him calling for a rescue aircraft because it wouldn't mean anything unless they could give him a tow. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Bob left left him or the two aircraft between them. Uh, Biggles would have gone further than before and uh, ended up with more fuel than Bob would have had. In the yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, but the whole outfit had been using the Vulcan had been taking more fuel than, than was planned by a, quite a long way. Mm. I mean, um, because there were no no accurate figures. When If you follow a chart of sort of fuel consumption and altitude and weights, it, it would, all the, the, the assumption was that if you filled up to full and then flew for another hour or something, 
they would balance out for that distance how much fuel we would use. But of course, we were filling up all the time and then filling up and filling up. You know, you're taking you know, your own car actually does better fuel consumption <laughs> when the tank's empty than when it's full. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, um, but that was it. So Bob had to leave enough uh, fuel with him to get you know, a, a nice bit of reserve for him to get guarantee getting back. And then they worked out uh, um, how much they could give us, uh, which I don't know how much less it was than, or what they how they worked it out. But we just the reason I got up, sort of upset and thought, felt let down by <laughs> was that our expectation was that we would be left full every time, and that was that was their job yeah. to leave it full. And when it was considered, you know, we finished. Uh, really early and told to to, um, to pull off break off and they couldn't give us any more and I felt really let down and I thought they that was they, you know, they shouldn't be doing that yeah. and mm-hmm. they can they can divert and of course I mean, it's I, radio silence so you couldn't chat about it could well, you we, we did start talking because <laughs> <laughs> one job <I> guys <laughs> one job yeah. <laughs> it's radio silence we were still quite a long way away um mm. from argentina and, and so on so um but the, the red light came on which clearly means you must break off mm. uh, and in in tanker world that would be an absolute thing you know because i mean the tanker could have been on fire you know yeah. and, mm. um, and and so there was dick saying got to break out got to break out and i said no you know we, we need the fuel <laughs> but then bob came up on the range said i said you've got to get us more and he said i can't give you any more quite simply so we broke off um and then this is where it's slightly contentious that i i claim that he said follow us north and we'll see if we can give you some more um and so they turned back at, and I followed them. And uh, and then we just about got to 180 degrees when they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't give you any more. Oh. And that's when I really got pissed off. Yeah. You know, uh, just just I wasted just all the fuel going more, north. Yes. <laughs> yeah. More fuel. Um, but I, uh, to me, it was so important that we got there mm. that um, without really calculating the figures um uh, i thought we we've really got to to do it and if it leaves us short of fuel um when we get back to the tanker uh, to refuel at the end well we have to rely on that being successful but i did i mean i didn't think it out so quite so deeply the main thing was that the, the figure we were left with was as almost a peacetime uh, figure we it, the Vulcan because it had fourteen fuel tanks, um, each tank with its own gauge and everything. Um, the it, you sort of add it up to a minimum fuel of say ten thousand uh, pounds, mm. but if you actually because of the, the they weren't the they, they were big flat tanks and so on and they they weren't accurate. Mm. Occasionally somebody with only eight thousand pounds would have a flame out. On one of the engines, Gosh. for example. So ten thousand pounds is your absolute minimum. That was minimum landing fuel, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but only because of the inaccuracy of the gauges okay, yeah. and the pumps. But if you actually use using because it's obviously right with the delta, the center of gravity has to be kept 
correctly. But if you yeah. fed off um, the front tanks for a bit until or until they went dry, right? Yeah. Um, and and you wait for the little, say, low fuel pressure or little doll's eyes. Yes. Uh, would tell you. So those tanks were then empty. So you then uh, would juggle around with it, and then you'd you'd empty another two tanks in the back, keeping your center of gravity. We've got a little push button for your CFG, yeah. keeping that right. And you could sort of store your fuel in maybe the front tanks and the rear tanks, which actually would have the, you know, they're the most reliable if you have electrical failure where they would still pump. Yeah. And you can get down to, let's say, 5,000 pounds right. quite easily. Um, so we did have a, a and then, then there was obviously, again, a bit of um, fuel added on in on our plan mm-hmm. for, on, you know, for contingencies and so on. Yes. So we, it did, I knew there was fuel that we could save. Um, how much? Don't know. Um, and to this day, I don't know how, <laughs> how close we were to it because I don't know quite where it was, where the, we picked up the Victor um, and how far away it was from Rio had we needed to go there. Mm. I don't think we'd have got there. Right. Wow. And you put it to your crew. I mean, you're obviously the commander. Your your decision was to, was to continue the the, the operation. Uh, and you had a quick chat with the crew, did you? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> ah, I thought maybe you had. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe in doing everything by committee. <laughs> Brilliant. But, uh, but I will say that um, poor old Dick said, no, no, we've got to go back. We've got to go back. You can't, you can't go on when you're re- that far below the line, you know. <laughs> and I prayed I ignored him. <laughs> Dick was having the worst time. <laughs> he was literally having the worst time. <laughs> had he been, oh, had he been sh- sh- so he sent him downstairs at this point, or was he still sitting in the first officer's seat? Oh, no, no, he, he was, yeah, no, he was still with me. He until we. Right to the last, after the last film. No, he yeah. would have then he'd go they down the back and Pete. The co-pilot, he'd been, Pete Taylor, he, he'd been asleep for six hours. Well, this is something no. I can understand. <laughs> now, so you, it's what, it's a 14-hour flight overall and no bunks. This doesn't work, surely. This is just, <laughs> 15 and three quarters, yes. <laughs> well, he, he, because he knew he was going to be down the back he he brought a sleeping bag and all the rest of it on he was because when we'd learned the um that um we we were the suddenly the primary crew mm-hmm. he was just getting himself comfortable down the back and the <laughs> order and probably taking i don't know whether he's taking any of his clothes off probably just <laughs> it all and because you can take the top of your immersion suit yeah. off um uh, but uh, then because we'd been Half an hour later, at least, um, uh, there was this little voice which came up and said, "Have I missed something?" Nobody <laughs> <laughs> was talking. Nobody <laughs> and he realised that the mood had changed. And so, I think I'm going to talk about the, the actual raid itself, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Mm. So we'll talk about the raid later. But on the way back, you had to rendezvous again with the victor. Yeah, which can't have been easy because you you obviously followed them all out. That was the easy part. Trying to find a victor over the South Atlantic can't be the easiest thing in the world. No, well, we were coming head on to one another, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we, we did have a, a Nimrod 
they're sent out to help with the join-up. Right. Once we were running late, and they'd uh, they'd actually come further down to he was getting short of fuel. Yeah. Um, so he actually had to to leg it to get home, but he still was able to see something. He was able to help put us together. Yeah. And, and then we we use a Takan uh, from. Um, both aircraft. Yes, yeah. Yeah. We take it, so we did come pretty good head on, lovely blue sky, yeah. and uh, just it, it was a perfect join up. Uh, that because uh, the way they join head on, they they like to join head on. Yeah. And then one just about about went about still about two three miles away starts a turn, and then you just come around and. and that must have been quite a sort of a, a moment of relief when you plugged into that the first oh, victory on the way home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, again from good old Roland's book <laughs> it, it, I, I was, would have said for years that I got in first time um, on, on that thing um, but uh, it, it, he's got a, a video uh, sorry an audio tape of what the AEO was seeing out of his periscope mm-hmm. it's, he said uh, oh the aircraft's coming up oh what a beautiful sight and and there he is. Oh, he's missed. <laughs> oh, Damn Roland. Damn yeah. Roland. <laughs> he lies, I'm sure. Yeah. He's, made, he's made it up. He's edited that. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and then when we uh, uh, joined up again, uh, I made a soft com- contact, which in the early earlier days, I say when we were first training, um, we kept getting leaks um, from the – when you got in – Fuel was pouring out around something. It turned out it was just the seals mainly on the on the whole system, but our Vulcan system because it all hadn't been used for years and they hadn't put new seals in or given it any maintenance or anything. Um, but on this occasion, well, I, once I got in, I must have gone in just too slowly because it's, it's it's got quite a big sort of spring on it to hold it in. Um, but if you but if you just go in gently. It's enough to open it so that it starts it starts flowing, um, and it was flowing, and quite a lot of it was going into the tanks, but quite a lot of it also was spilling over mm. us and over the windscreen, um, and we had the windscreen wipers going, <laughs> and then the nav, nav radar was up the ladder because he could see the green light and I couldn't, and so he was I was just in, you know you can move around a bit so you don't have to hang on to it yeah. particularly hard um and uh i can't remember what i could see but very little but and dick again <laughs> you can't do this you know? <laughs> 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 you've got to go out and do it again and i said no i'm not as long as i'm, got the food, I'm not going anywhere no <laughs> it got to about twenty thousand pounds on the on the dials enough to divert with at least yeah, yeah. And so I then broke out. So when, once you've connected to the basket, is it then it's quite straightforward to stay connected? I mean, are you still working really hard as the pilot? Well, once you're in, you, you can it's quite you can go quite a lot up, up and down and left and right. It's just the flex with the hose. You know? Yeah, uh, you can put excess pressure. On. I mean, if you do rough with it, you could, it's, possibly this is how you tear the. The end off because it's just yeah. held on with rivets a row, mm. uh, all the way around, yeah. and they're designed to break off um, rather than bend the whole 
Mm. Martin, there's a, there's a quote in the book which I, I, I'd love to think is true, but <laughs> you can tell me if it's an expression you you used or heard. One of, one of the tanker uh, pilots, I think, said, um, it's a bit, trying to make a connection with the, with the refueling basket is a bit like shoving wet spaghetti up a cat's arse. <laughs> and I, 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 I would love to think that that is an actual tanker <laughs> expression, but you can tell me if maybe that's a bit of poetic well, license on Roland's part. All I, all I know is I had heard it before. Yeah. <laughs> and Roland... Um, liked it so much you put it in the book <laughs> i thought as much oh that's lovely that's lovely martin we, we've jumped ahead a little bit we, we've um we must take you back to to, to that bombing run then so you're, you're coming in at, at low height to avoid radar yeah we we let down gradually uh, what we reckoned was to be uh, to stay below the radar horizon from you know we'd been up at 42,000 feet or whatever you mm. know uh, most economical. Once once we finished with the tanker, we, and this is another reason why we were running so low on fuel, really, or the Vulcan was using more fuel than planned, was we weren't flying at economical heights and speeds for a Vulcan mm. uh, because we had a better power-to-weight ratio than the, the Victor. Um, well, we were lighter than the Victor, even when we were full. We were considerably lighter than the full Victor. Um, so we were flying lower um, down in the high 20s instead of well, on our own. I say we'd been up over 40,000 feet if we were, or maybe not when we were full and full of, like, well into the 30s. Nice little sort of cruise descent, uh, minimizing the fuel um, until we just gradually climbed down there until we leveled off over the sea at about 500 feet. Was it daylight at this point, or was it still night time? No, it was night, but it was a good, it was a moon out and it was quite light. Um, and so we could actually see the sea, you know, differentiate yeah. where, wow. where it was. Um, and then we just came in and gr- gradually went down to about 300 feet as we're getting closer and closer. I forget the if I ever knew the ranges. I don't think I did know how far away we were, but um, <laughs> we were coming in. Uh, the radar was off, uh, so it didn't give us away. And then when they started getting a, a itchy about, they didn't know where they were, Quite, this is when they we had the difference between the two inertial nav systems. Mm. How how far out was the was the difference? Were you? I, I said, well, it's in the book. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yeah. It's it was either ten or twenty mile. I think it was about twenty mile difference. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So by averaging it out, it, you you were ten ten miles ten from somewhere. Miles, yeah. Probably from from one or the other. Um, so. Uh, we we came in the getting the navigators were really getting edgy because they hadn't got anything to navigate from mm. other than these things apart. Um the nav radar uh, turned the radar on, but actually it he turned it right off. Um and uh, it should have been left in standby. So yeah. so it, it then took a couple few minutes to right. actually Get warm up set again and Gosh. to warm up and get the gyros going and all the rest of it. Um, so he was he was getting obviously rather twitchy. <laughs> and then when he finally had got it going, um, we were still at three hundred feet. Uh, he he couldn't see anything ahead, and it was just, so uh, he was expecting to see land ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are hills on the Falklands, nothing very very big, yeah. but they would have gone up. 
from the, he thought they'd show up from that sort of range. So this is when I was asked to go up a couple hundred feet and uh, or go up and I went up to 500 feet and that was enough for him to actually see that um, we were heading towards land mm -hmm. and uh, the hills in the background were sort of saying he was expecting. So we ducked down again um, just to run in. As, I didn't feel the need to go below 300 feet, although I've been quite happy to with a rad out. Yeah. It's, it's such a stable platform. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then as we reached, I think it was something like 40 miles, uh, that's when we did the pull up to the bombing height. Um, so just a you know, full power climb, level off, running in at about 300 knots. I can't remember the exact speed. And is that when the, uh, the radar warning receiver started coming to life? Well, this is, yeah, during that, that last bit of it. During that you know, bit, yeah. Um, and uh, so that came in. But I say I didn't even know about it because I got the thing turned off. Um, <laughs> and this just volume turned <laughs> off. But, and then as we, we got close, then obviously the navigator, and the radar, he was able to identify the, the headland that he was aiming at, which is still about a mile away from the, from the runway. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, another factor from that is on a map, if you're measuring off a map, you're not quite sure how they drew that uh, headland, whether it's somebody on the ground measured it out uh, yeah. or, or whether somebody did an aerial one, which actually could see through and it could have been fairly shallow water yeah. where it would be, you know, bigger than it looked, yeah. or a mile or something different. Um, so lots of uh, sort of, Different errors that could be built built in, um, but then he, he he was obviously felt he got a good aiming point because until the last thirty seconds or whatever, um, he was just giving me tiny little um, movement sections. Just it, by him moving his aiming point, it fed through to our instrument, so that I'm just following and lead like an ILS, sort of just following a thing in. Um, and then it was, I was just trying to hold it steady on height and speed. You know, it was just like an instrument rating test, you know, <laughs> flying it like this. So that's all I could really think of. Yeah. I could see the, the airfield ahead. Um, and it all still to this day, it would seem so strange to be coming in. And the fact in a few seconds, we were actually going to drop bombs on this And place. the airfield was lit up as in peacetime. Uh, it, there were lights on. No, it wasn't sort of operating lights because no. there's no flying going in and out. But there, there were lights on, yeah. so we could they weren't blackout. Mm. And then uh, I say just steady, steady. Maybe I can't remember. I think that yeah, the radar would be talking to me, but sometimes he would put something in, and then he would. I wouldn't take it out until he said take it out. Mm. And Martin, you were flying in at th about was it thirty five degrees to the to the oh. straight line of the runway to to make sure you're yeah obliquely so we, crossing we the right. We're all on track because this is the other thing. That's right, it's not wasn't just a matter of we had to be on the attack track, but we managed to achieve that. The cr the craters show the line really, yeah? yeah. And the reason for that was the, the runway is only about one hundred and fifty feet wide. A Vulcan wingspan is 110 feet. <laughs> so it gives you a perspective. Um, and uh, the if you just try and, I mean, I've, I've still got somewhere at home in a trunk a uh, photograph from the sun 
which shows craters all the way down the runway, you know, that's wonderful. But you only have to be a, you know, a few feet out and yeah. they all go off down the side of the runway. Mm. Um, going um, at, at diagonally, then if it's 150 feet that way, it's you've got a little bit more, about 160 feet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, with an angle. So you've just got that little bit of extra. Mm. Uh, and the spacing between the bombs is something like two second let's say, 100 feet separation uh, between the, the bombs. So mm. if you've got two on the runway, it would imply almost that you were leaving a, a hole in the centre. Yeah. You know, So getting one would have been nearer the centre of the runway. Yeah. And all the bombs went off OK? They all dropped off, all right. They all yeah. dropped off. Yeah. But interesting enough, there are only 16 big craters. <laughs> oh. Uh, the first one uh, it was the one on the runway. Yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> now, whether, whether that was the first bomb that came off or, or not, I'm not sure, because the if, if you're bombing a runway, you're supposed to use um, very strong casings. You should do a machined casing uh, for these bombs. But because we um, had no longer got a conventional um, role, we, we got rid of all our bombs at Waddington. They were all, we actually loaded them up in the Vulcan and threw them off in the, down the sea. You know, we did, <laughs> we did bombing runs. And, yeah. and uh, when was no longer had a role for uh, conventional bombs. So they just were using whatever thousand pounders they could get. They didn't differentiate between one that was going to uh, go for a runway or hard target oh. or not. And who in the crew, Martin, is actually bomb release? Who's actually releasing the bombs? Is it the nav radar? He, well, he doesn't actually press a button as such. He, this was done automatically in the sense he'd set it all up um, so, uh, to, to run down to the release point. Oh, right. And uh, it, it then goes off. And the, the, the way the bombs are released, actually, is incredible. It, that's, it's... It actually it, it's elect, it elect, done electrically, but they you have diff, there's a nine, thing called a ninety way. Yeah. There are ninety different ninety different ways huh. of of dropping twenty one bombs. <laughs> you can drop them um, for sort of one off each carrier. Yeah. You can drop one off the front and the back at the same time. You can drop them. You and the way they did that, you had a, a big wooden board. <laughs> and you had lit things you set actually physically ran up and if you want them all to go off you put all the lot to the top um and then they would ripple down in an order as to suit and they were actually falling down and making the sending off the med, the, the uh, message to uh, release those bombs gosh incredible and it was um so antiquated it was the same it yeah. similar in a lancaster or something yeah. i suppose yeah <laughs> And what's the what was the forward throw of those um, of those bombs? From how far uh, from the runway were you when you when you released the uh, the bomb load at ten thousand feet? I don't know. Right, I don't know. It's some miles it, though. It equates to um, because the bomb just about um, lands underneath the aircraft. Um, if you're doing 300 knots or something, then the forward throw will be very different from if you're doing 400 knots. Mm. Um, 
just it's because you know it's the time it takes sure um but I don't know what I don't know what figures we're talking about. No. Do, okay. do the physical flying characteristics of the aircraft change as the bombs are going? Do you, do you feel a difference? Does it feel lighter or anything, or is it exactly? Well, the same? they they ripple off evenly. You know, they go front, back, middle, front, back, middle, front, yeah. back, middle, sort of thing. Um, and there are seven on each carrier. Right. Um, so we just had three carriers. Yeah. The um, no, I. It doesn't make a difference. Are you aware as you're flying that the bombs are going? I would say no. Right. Mm. right. But you're consciously trying to keep it absolutely yeah. level. And uh, so you, you would sort of almost can't, can't feel it. No. Know. It's not an instrument raging test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary, is it? So you then know all the bombs are gone and then you, you turn north and think it's time to get out of there. Just through full power, sort of. So I first learned to do aerobatic, not aerobatic, <laughs> display maneuvers. So yeah. get, it, get the hell out of there. Well, yeah. Was that planned before, or was that once the bombs were on, that was just what you were doing? You were just getting yeah. out of there. Oh would, no! no. Just, just let's get out of here. Yeah. However, no. Um, so, uh, and I was just so relieved that I was still alive. No, yeah, this is yeah. a, the other thing, something I can remember. Yeah. Uh, uh, and this is when I actually got out of my seat and went down the bank and, and I slept for about four hours. So, wow. <laughs> and uh, so when I was talking to Sir Michael Beetham, the chief of air staff, debriefing him, um, I, I said, this, this had done, I'd gone down there back for sleep and he turned to his... Uh, Group captain aid, I think. Said, is the, is the captain allowed to go down the back? <laughs> the group captain said, in the circumstances, I I think it's all right, sir. <laughs> Carry on with us. <laughs> so, so Martin, when you did eventually make it back to Ascension after that refueling and landed, and you heard that the bombs then had had actually hit the target. Uh, I think Bob Tuxford came up to to give you a beer, and he said he didn't think you quite recognised him. But I'd love what between you and Bob. After all that, have you remained friends? Have you never spoken since? Oh no, no, we, <laughs> I, I don't know if we're friends. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> but no, no. Uh, it, we had a, a real ding dong argument a few years later because I, I was saying that I was I was annoyed, and and he didn't. But all right, I was annoyed. Says I was just there's no reason to deny it, yeah. and, and the fact that I thought he let me down, I did think that, you know. Um, and uh, but I've, you know, I now once I'd understood, we didn't understand, know any about thing about this, um, and I, if he brought me over a beer, um, I don't didn't I wouldn't have identified him as the man who had let me down. No. Um, so he, he claims that, I, which I pro- I'm not denying it happened, but uh, he, no, so we, we're, no, we're all okay now. <laughs> well, done. well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be seeing him next week. <laughs> <laughs> was it a big night out after? Or is it, were you just well, into we bed? Was, no, well, no, he we was so tired and everything after that. Um, 
can't remember what time of day it was we were landing back, midday or something. It's about I two o'clock, I think, in the afternoon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then it was probably a few beers and yeah. then bed first night and then we had an opportunity the following night. Nobody was flying the following night. Uh, the night after that was Black Buck 2. Yeah. Uh, after Black Buck 1, did you expect to go again or was it was that always the plan or were you, did you think that just that one show of force would be enough? Oh, no, no. It was... Um, because the first one had worked, it was very definitely a plan to, to do more. Mm. And thereafter, um, the plan was to send do a black buck any time they've got the right number of uh, victors there. Mm. Wow. But, um, and this is why on the 12th of June, I ended up doing a, another bombing raid. Yeah. Um, but we thought we were it was all over and we were all, already got our bags packed. To <laughs> Um, but uh, and that was purely and simply because they they calculated the victors aren't going anywhere tomorrow. Well, let's have another. <laughs> <laughs> let's have another raid. No, but I mean, this was the whole attitude. I mean, when the they were desperate to throw everything at it, and yeah. I think that probably did some good yeah. that last one because it did demonstrate that while everybody was running out of ammunition and food and everything, both sides it was a very close run thing. Um, at the end of the um, war, as mm-hmm. it came into June, but uh, and the, um, the the navy had upped their game because they having laser marking. No, I'm not sure the navy, but anyway, that the Harriers were been lobbing bombs off um, all and sundry on the runway and others. They, but it was a very crude. Thing. They, they just think toss bombing from a, a, their known position and and radar and everything. But the Sea Harriers are better, so much better equipped than the the GR threes. Mm. But at the last bit, then they were doing they were doing some successful toss bombing mm. uh, on troops and things, not on the airfield. Um, and the fact that we could keep coming, we showed we could keep coming, might have influenced the surrender. But, mm. Yeah. yeah, because there was that there was criticism, wasn't there, and controversy from certain areas. I, I suspect maybe the navy, the fleet air arm, that uh, all that effort to just drop a single bomb on the runway was it really worth oh. it? But it was it was about far more than that, wasn't it? It was the message that it also sent to the Argentinians that you would be capable of doing a lot more. In fact, possibly bombing the mainland. So it changed their perspective of, of how they could fight the war. Yeah. But, I mean, Sharky Ward. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yes. Funny you should mention him. Yeah. Continually said it was an absolute waste of time and money to send a Vulcan. <laughs> he, he had been, they had, he'd been throwing at, and others had been lobbing 1,000-pound bombs from the Sea Harriers onto the airfield. And according to, again, to an RAF thing, um, what's his name? Uh, Harrier pilot. Who was on flew off the carriers. Anyway, he was saying that they they never hit the never hit the runway. They they threw quite a number of bombs mm. at it right. without hitting it from a sea area. Gosh, but it, it's not designed for it. No, so ours was the only real big crater on the runway, and it um, the proof of the pudding, as far as I'm concerned, is that um, it, the Sandy Sandy Woodward, Admiral Sandy Woodward, 
they definitely said that the first priority was to put that runway out of action um, because he he didn't want to he couldn't bring his fleet anywhere near the islands uh, I call it a fleet probably called the wrong name but Flotilla. all the ships <laughs> the ships in num- got up to over a hundred ships mm. uh, and they spent a lot of their time about 400 miles away from the islands um, and uh, but had they been able to just come out from the mainland uh, and bomb his ships and then refuel on the Falklands yeah um, that would have totally changed things mm. and uh, and said so they would for them to have a forward operating base as it's called um, um, never happened so mm. they, I think one landed back um, but couldn't take off again didn't, couldn't take off again or no. something um, but anyway it, it didn't happen um, the, the other factor was that the um, they never used their uh, Mirage threes yeah, yeah. mirage no. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. um the uh, they because um they they wanted to redeploy them uh, up to uh, up to buenos aires to defend their their forces there mm-hmm. apparently they had 15 of these um which could have made a huge difference yeah. uh, uh, taking out the um the Shahs, mm. um, but they never came over the island. They never escorted any of the daggers or the A4s. Mm. So uh, Roland's claim that uh, it, you know it made a significant difference, um, I think, must have been right because you know the Harriers were doing a lot of work, and they and the the Argentinians were running short of fuel because it's it's about two hundred miles from. Argentina to come from these airfields mm. um, and that 400 mile round trip and that was about the range of, of these aircraft yeah. mm. so they couldn't stay and fight or mm. evade very much mm. and were very easy to shoot down particularly with the sidewinders, sidewinders yeah. sorry uh, Martin I don't want to wear you up but so uh, Falklands is over the Vulcan then eventually gets decommissioned later that year and then 25 years or so later, you're then displaying the last remaining Vulcan XH558. That must have been a, a, a lovely period of flying for you, wasn't it? Well, our huge thanks to Martin for taking so much time to talk to us in so much depth about his historic mission to the Falklands in 1982. And you can hear more from Martin in part two, in which he speaks with unadulterated joy about displaying the last airworthy Vulcan XH558. That'll drop a week after this episode first drops, so depending on when you're listening to this, it may well be there right now. And remember, you can hear all our podcasts by visiting our website, toplandinggear.com, or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Please do join us again soon.